All right, hey folks, it's Faz from Faz Lifts, and today I'm joined with Dr. Alan Flanagan. Very pleased to have you here, and we are going to be discussing nutritional fads and quackery. Um, Alan, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. And uh, yeah, nut nutritional fads, I wouldn't be too, you know, hot on their prevalence, but quackery is always a funny thing to discuss. <laughs> yes. So um, I'll do a quick introduction for, for Alan. Uh, he's on IG as a nutritional advocate, that is the nutritional underscore advocate. Uh, he has a company called Alinea Nutrition. Um, just recently, I think you uh, got your PhD in nutritional medicine. Um, as uh, Eric Helms likes to point out, it's Dr. Alan Flanagan now, and you are a former barrister from Ireland and also co-host on the Sigma Nutrition podcast, which I've personally been binging on. I think it's great. Um, I think that's about everything. Um, would you like to add anything to that? Yeah, no, that's, that is it. Yeah. So, uh, oh, my, my, it was my MSc was nutritional medicine. Um, and then I went on to do my PhD at the same uni, University of Surrey. And my PhD specifically was looking at uh, timing of food intake, really, and the interaction with circadian rhythms and how that might influence metabolic health. Um, so, yeah, nice to get that done. Congratulations. Awesome. Very cool. The reason I brought you on today is I wanted to bring you to the natural bodybuilding community over on YouTube. So this will be out on YouTube and also various podcasts. And just to preface our discussion, I think the natural bodybuilding community, while it does straddle the evidence-based space and also the sort of the bro space, we are quite different from the evidence-based space in that we lean on evidence uh, science a little bit less. And we're different from the bro science space in that we lean on anecdotes a little bit less. But I think one of the issues where uh, which I've seen as a problem is we don't always have the best people in our space to uncover bad science, bad interpretations of research. And I think in training, it's not particularly that damaging. We saw the muscle protein synthesis issues a few years ago where people misinterpreted that research. And before you knew it, everybody was proclaiming bro splits as being dead and you had to train the muscle two, three times a week or more. So there's still that which goes on. And there was some recent focus on overhead tricep work. But I don't think that's that dangerous. It's basically just wasted time. But uh, I think what can cause some issues is nutritional misinterpretations. So that's why you're here today. Yeah, well, I mean, look, we, we, we live in a funny world now. I, I spoke to Danny about this um, on a podcast recently where we were talking about our initial journey into nutrition just out of interest and then going on to a more formal education route. Um, you know, if you think back to... 2008, nine, certainly when I started becoming interested in this, the, the paleo diet was a big, was a big movement at the time. But if you look back to what that looked like at that point in time, in hindsight, it was actually fairly sensible, right? Yes, they were recommending a lot of um, focus of, of, of kind of meats and eggs, but they were recommending a lot of non-starchy vegetable intake, fruits, berries, they were recommending starch intake. They were just very particular about the carbohydrate choices that they made. So they would have had rules like, well, sweet potato, okay, but white potato not, and, and this kind of thing. And you can pick whatever holes you want in that. But the point is like where we are now, we've lads eating testicles on their social media channels. <laughs> and, and it's like, you, <laughs> like, we've just descended like we've hit rock bottom and so um 
I find even just, I, I think in years to come, the sociology of, of, of why diet became this weird thing in, in current contemporary society that we, we latch onto with bizarre rituals and beliefs will be a really interesting topic to study. Um, but unfortunately, we're the ones stuck in it right now. So we have to deal with it as we find it. Yeah, initially, it did seem that a lot of these um, camps would sort of drag you in with some fairly sensible um, outlines, but then the particulars might be a little bit, a little bit off. Whereas now it's just try and be an outrage as outrageous as you like, and uh, that's what gets the views. And but the, the crazy thing is, I think, is when it comes to nutrition and where it's different from training is more than likely the ones who are most desperate to find a solution for various problems might be drawn to those in an act of desperation. And and that's I think a problem, mm -hmm. particularly with some of the more dangerous trends like the the keto and carnival, which uh, the more extreme versions of keto certainly. So I guess I wanted to kick off the discussion with um, discussing the validity of keto and carnival. And in terms of your opinion, just on the viability of those diets, not only for health, but also for muscle building, I think would be a good, uh, if we can straddle both, that'd be nice. Um, I think some of the some of those diets, they're propped up from rebuttals from those camps, which center around two main areas from what I see, which is improved health coming from people who were previously very overweight, 300 to 400 pounds, and then coming down to a more normal weight. And inevitably their blood work probably would improve. Uh, and so this is seen as a case for why keto or carnivore are great. Um, and also people leading on mechanistic arguments to prop up the viability for low carbs. So that's what I see in terms of if I'm playing devil's advocate, um, but I'd love to get your opinion on, on that. Yeah, I think we need to start with some degree of granularity because low carb as an umbrella term is quite expansive. Um, and, and really low carb could range from anything from less than, you know, 45% of calories to what some of the researchers in that area would say, well, it's not really a low carb diet unless it's got less than about 26% of daily energy. And then we've got the ketogenic and carnivore iterations of this. Now the ketogenic diet, I, I, I will, to be fair to researchers in that field, not lump, lump keto in with carnivore, although it's the same type of person that's attracted to, to the diet. The, the ketogenic diet is more interesting because it, it has a lineage of a hundred years at this point. It was developed in the 1920s uh, by a German physician uh, who noted that um, in his patients that had epilepsy, uh, they didn't experience seizures when they were fasted. And so his research basically thought, well, we can't fast people in perpetuity. <laughs> so is there a way that we can mimic the physiology of fasting through a dietary intervention? whereby they obtain energy. And they, so the traditional ketogenic diet contains essentially 80% of energy from dietary fat and a one-to-one -one ratio of protein and carbohydrate left over. Highly restrictive diet, um, more prevalent use in pediatric populations because the kids are just told what to eat and they don't have a choice in the matter. Over time, it evolved to different iterations. Uh, one example of which is the um, medium chain triglyceride ketogenic diet where uh, 30 of the total fat content, 30% would come from MCTs 
And that would, because of their unique metabolism, allow for slightly more dietary protein intake. So the diet was less restrictive. So the, the ketogenic diet in that context has always been a part of the nutrition research landscape, but it's primarily been confined to very specific, specific clinical indications, and particularly as it might relate to certain neurological conditions like epilepsy. And so it's been used in that context for years. It started kind of leaking out of the research world and into the popular space, again, around this kind of late 2007, 8, 9, and into the, into the 2010s. Uh, and it started to become a more popular diet in use then. And that's when you would see a lot of the potential issues arise with it because it's often just implemented basically as the bacon and butter diet, right? And there are a lot of narratives that come with um, that community, generally speaking, which they need to believe in order to justify the dietary choices that they're making. So for example, a primary narrative in that community is that saturated fat has no role in cardiovascular disease, um, that blood cholesterol levels have no role in cardiovascular disease. Oh, look at your triglycerides, look at your inflammation, uh, look at your insulin sensitivity. These are what matter. And it's not that, it's not that they don't matter. Um, but again, it's, it's, it's deliberate obfuscation away from the, the really big thing that matters to, to things that are important, but not necessarily causal or deterministic. Um, and in the popular space, it's, it's kind of frustrating because there's no need for a ketogenic diet to be that. I mean, you, you could technically do a fully plant-based ketogenic diet and satisfy that macronutrient prescription. Um, on the research side, you know, there's been some interesting interest in the ketogenic diet beyond its traditional clinical nutrition indications. Uh, some of it is in the sports performance realm. Um, a lot of the interest was related to the kind of enhancement of a potential enhancement of fat oxidation. Uh, at this point, there's really no evidence that that's the case, that there is any greater fat oxidation. What you basically get is you're eating more fat, uh, you're burning more fat. <laughs> um, so it's not rocket science. Um, your fuel utilization and substrate use is, is a reflection of your, obviously, the, the stores available in the body, the exercise intensity at which someone is operating at, and of course, the dietary intake of, of that substrate. Um, and, you know, some of the, some of the, some of the main hypotheses in this area of enhanced, certainly kind of aerobic metabolic capacity were, were really dealt a few hammer blows by uh, Professor Louise Burke in Australia with the Institute of Sport. They, they did a, a study on running, on walking economy, on exercise economy in Olympic walkers um, and a ketogenic diet really impaired uh, their, their ability to operate at, at, at the kind of maximal thresholds that they needed to operate at. There's been some studies that have looked at strength and muscle building um, they are uniformly underwhelming. Uh, at, the, at the very best, you can preserve muscle on a ketogenic diet, um, but there's almost no evidence that you could build muscle on a ketogenic diet to, to any substantial, meaningful degree um, without compromising on the ketogenic aspect of the diet. Um, so you would have to really be altering the protein content of, of the diet 
and the carbohydrate content and of course you know total energy intake as well um but but the current evidence for for the ability to build muscle and enhance performance on a ketogenic diet really if you were interested in those outcomes relative to what we know about other diets and basic first principles of of strength and performance and hypertrophy it would take an enormous leap of faith to say i'm i'm going to see that evidence and leave it there and i'm going to go this way um and then from a health perspective you know i think you can do a ketogenic diet very well but in the in the popular wider landscape that that's really not what people do um and you know there are anecdotal reports of people in that community with ldl levels of over 300 mg per deciliter 400 mg per deciliter and the thing is like you said they'll turn around and say but but my i've lost 60 kilos of weight uh, my blood glucose level has come down um you know my insulin sensitivities my triglycerides have come down and all of that is true but all of those are short term metabolic adaptations that reflect weight loss not the diet and atherosclerosis takes decades <laughs> so they're taking this short term gratification to then start to put in building blocks of long term cardiovascular risk um and and that is pretty much what i would say about the carnivore diet as well except for with the with the ketogenic diet you will get people who still try deliberately to include non-starchy vegetables and fruits within their very restricted carbohydrate content but with the carnivore diet i think we've really gone off the precipice of anything as far as reason goes and i say that particularly with colorectal cancer in mind and everything we know about not just biological plausibility but human outcomes as far as consuming that high red meat red meat diet even with unprocessed red meat which people love to say well we don't eat processed meat but we encourage you know grass it's even with unprocessed meats at the doses they're consuming uh there are still carcinogenicities and we know this from human interventions metabolic ward studies that have fed people 400 grams of unprocessed meat a day and you see these processes occur so again the problem is these diseases are long latency diseases they're not going to develop overnight they're not going to develop in a month they're possibly not going to develop in 5 years and so it's difficult to compute through to someone that you're talking about a decade or 15 years down the line at which these adverse effects may arise yeah absolutely i mean i to your point i did my own little keto and carnivore experiment um towards the late end of last year and early this year um and like you were saying i found my body weight went down and um initially actually felt pretty good i found my performance absolutely tanked because nowadays i do mostly bodybuilding workouts powerlifting workouts are well behind me and so the high repetition high volume stuff completely tanked i was gassing out it was a very unusual type of gassing out too 45 minute mark and i'm just dead um but i also found um over the long term at towards the end of the 3 months or so that i did it my blood sugars were going up my triglycerides were going up and i thought to myself this is not good <laughs> so yeah i think it's it takes a while to see and i didn't lose a great deal of weight and i'm fairly normal weight about 80 kilos but i imagine somebody who's seeing the weight loss for the first time after so long they can probably glaze over like mentally glaze over a lot of the negatives which are building up and could be very problematic later on yeah and i think you know to your point about your blood sugar starting to go up you know we we do have some from Kevin Hall's research we have seen that there's this 
paradoxical induction of, of glucose intolerance that comes with some of these diets. Um, and, you know, of course, there's a there's a rate limit to how much fat someone can, can consume without their triglycerides going up as well, uh, even though in the context of a normal mixed diet, they tend to go down or in the short term. And, you know, to that point, what's becoming obvious now is the proponents of this diet will love to point to a case study or two. What they're not pointing you to is the whole communities mm. <laughs> online of people that are having the the most awful of times on this diet as far as their health markers. And they're being completely ignored. Um, and I think that that just, that really highlights charlatans um, and their they feign to the world as if they're really here to help people. You know, I'm, I'm, I just, I just want to get people healthy. Um, you know, do what I do, um, but they'll completely ignore, shut down, and disengage from anyone that's had anything negative to report. And there was, I'm not sure if you saw this, but it did the rounds last year, um, and I was sharing it with some people that I know that are in medicine. And it was a guy and he looked, he, he was shredded, right? He was completely shredded, really not a, not a big guy at all either. Um, but he posted on Twitter saying, um, I've just had a, a heart bypass and I've got a stent because I had arteries that were, were blocked. But wow. I've been doing this diet. I've done everything right. Someone tell me. And he was tagging in it for an explanation, the same idiots whose advice he followed all the way to a fucking operating table, right? <laughs> and and they're and they're just and they're saying, oh, it's probably the seed oils you consumed from before you changed your diet. That's so incredible. so it's 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 unbelievable. It's unbelievable. So, you know, people are being led down the garden path and they're they're going to, you know, die. <laughs> some yeah. will. And some yeah. will have really serious health consequences. I think this leads into like another little side topic, which is a lot of where people get their information from these days. And it's one of the reasons why I wanted to get you onto the podcast. I think more and more people are, we're seeing people are getting their information about very serious topics of social media, which is both good and bad. It's very easily accessible, but the problem is, and what I've seen with the evidence and a natural bodybuilding spaces is when you're on social media, you don't really always necessarily know who you to, to listen to. And I think there needs to be more, moderate sensible mainstream and just true <laughs> you know research-based um voices there and that's really why i was so keen on getting you on um firstly to talk about this stuff which is which is fantastic but um i think that's a big issue i think people get their get their information rather from their doctor or whatever else official sources they go to social media i mean that's a whole different topic i think the distrust of authority distrust of medicine as a whole is a problem but i definitely think one of the things we can do to counter that is getting people like yourself on and just talking more on on these issues yeah what i would like to do i've had this conversation with with other people that have you know platforms um you know i've spoken to danny for example about it um simon hill and other people that that and and this is never something that we do at sigma like you know, if you know from listening to the podcast, it's always an academic, someone actually doing the research that Danny will interview. Um, and then for those Quack Asylum episodes, it's it's us having that discussion. 
And people will come to me and they'll say, well, why don't you just debate a, a carnivore MD? And I'm like, because it's pointless. And so what I want the evidence-based community to do is stop platforming these people by under, under the pretense of a debate, because it's not a debate. They just want to run circles around what you've said and dodge just to re-hammer their points home. And rather, what I think would be far more fruitful is if we actually have those conversations and debates amongst ourselves. Um, you know, and so for example, like uh, I would have the a slight, slightly different interpretation of some of the unprocessed red meat research than Dr. Lane Norton. But me and Lane can have that conversation in a science-based, uh, good faith, respectful way. And we're both speaking the same language. We're both coming at it from the place of just looking at the evidence and having that discussion at the level of evidence. And that would benefit the listener far more than someone debating a carnivore md you know yeah, um because because you're operating from the same epistemic framework and and you're operating and you're speaking the same language and ultimately it's really coming down to okay this is why i'm taking this interpretation and these are my justifications for that by reference to this evidence and th and they're saying the same slightly different and what you tend to realize with those types of academic conversations is there are very slim margins of of disagreement to the point where it's it's not really that much of a substantive disagreement and and often the outcome of that disagreement in terms of general advice is actually quite similar or the same and it, and it's almost never to spend your day eating testicles <laughs> that, so that we can be certain <laughs> yeah no i think that's great i mean there are there are fewer strands of truth but almost infinite strands of bs so debating these people just wouldn't really be valuable yep. so awesome so uh, just to kind of summarize the the section on keto and carnivore i think from a um, performance standpoint i'm neither of us are particularly convinced um i've done my own experimentations you've you've mentioned that it doesn't seem to work that well with the studies you've seen and from health perspective um i guess some of the more dangerous aspects and i might get you to speak on this briefly before we move on are perhaps saturated fat also high salt intake seem to be something that's pushed in the yeah. Sort of in the same community. If if the guy's talking about eating um, uh, keto carnivore, they usually talk about high salt as well, which I guess has some viability because you do tend to lose quite a lot of water. But the rates of salt intake that these people recommend, um, I'm not so sure that alongside the high levels of saturated fat is a great idea. If you could just speak on that briefly before we move on. Yeah. So so it's with diet and disease outcomes, we're never necessarily talking about a straight line between whatever that food or that, that nutrient is and an outcome. Um, and this is because the impact of diet is not direct on the disease outcome itself, but it's on the risk factors for that disease. So if we're talking about saturated fat, I'll commonly hear people say, well, you know, saturated fat doesn't clog the arteries. And it's like, no, no. LDL cholesterol <laughs> clogs the arteries, saturated fat raises LDL cholesterol. So it's what we would call a causal chain between the diet or the nutrient, the risk factor, and that, that disease outcome then. Um, and it's the same for sodium, right? So we sodium itself is not running around in, in necessarily in the in 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 
stroke, for example, we don't find it in the brain, but what we do have is serious issues with hypertension. And so it's a causal chain between sodium, blood pressure, stroke, and other kind of vascular outcomes and cardiovascular outcomes. And it's quite easy for someone to go to research because you can find research saying no association or with sodium, for example, you can find research suggesting actually a low intake is just as risky as a high intake and actually you kind of want a moderate intake and otherwise. Um, and just because a study says that doesn't mean that its conclusions are valid <laughs> in terms of the methods used and the, and the analysis used to arrive at those conclusions. And so separating it out a bit with saturated fat, one of the issues is that our current population diets are not really that high anymore in saturated fat. Certainly not where they were in the 1950s and 60s and early 70s, where if you lived in a country like the UK or Finland or the US um, or other kind of northern and western European countries, where saturated fat was often 20%, 19%, 20, 21, 22% of daily energy, very high levels of intake. Um, and when we really parse the evidence, what we will see with saturated fat ultimately is that chain between the impact of diet on population blood cholesterol levels and the, and the corresponding increase in coronary heart disease mortality. But a lot of recent analyses, for example, will actually, you know, factor out blood cholesterol levels, which means that you're missing that, that link in the chain, or they'll be in populations that don't have very high levels of saturated fat intake. So I saw one study as an example, uh, that a, a guy big, big kind of in the, in the fitness community posted about saying this is this is this shows a higher saturated fat intake lowers risk of stroke and i thought mm, amber light went and had a look at the study and it was it was a study from primarily japanese populations right. so their highest level of intake was 21 to 24 grams of saturated fat a day not percent grams and they're low so these were people consuming less saturated fat than our current recommended guidelines. And yet they butchered the interpretation to suggest that higher intake was associated with lower risk. Actually, what that study was saying was that if you consume levels within our current recommended intakes, you have lower risk of stroke. And no one interpreted it that way because it's not controversial. So with saturated fat, the biggest issue is that it impacts on LDL cholesterol the way it impacts on LDL cholesterol is basically the same mechanism through which the drugs that have been developed to treat cardiovascular disease act, which is that saturated fat acts on the LDL receptor, which is the receptor we need to clear the cholesterol carried in LDL from the blood and bring it down so it's not getting into the arteries and then getting retained and all the processes of atherosclerosis that occur subsequent to that. And saturated fats basically suppress and downregulate the expression of the LDL receptor, which means there's not a receptor there to clear that cholesterol from the blood and it remains elevated. And over time, that LDL gets retained in the arteries and forms plaque. And we know that causal chain is present and there are reasons in research why it isn't always apparent, like I've, like I've explained in terms of factoring out population cholesterol levels or even just not 
studying a population that don't have that high intake anymore. Um, and with sodium, this is those studies that suggest, say, a lower intake is a risk or that would encourage people to consume kind of slightly higher intakes or even much higher intakes are flawed in the way that sodium is measured. So we measure sodium in nutrition research using urinary sodium excretion. That's a double-edged sword because on the one hand, it's highly representative of dietary intake because 95% of sodium that you intake is excreted through urine. We lose minimal amounts in sweat and almost none in feces. So it's a great actual representation of intake. The problem is our day-to-day -day levels of intake fluctuate significantly. So if you only do a single measurement in someone, you really don't, you misestimate what their actual sodium level is. And if you look at the studies that suggested that a lower intake was associated with higher risk, they always use single sodium measurements. And in the available studies that we have that have used multiple measurements from each, from the same participant, multiple measurements, three to seven measurements, correcting for that kind of error, then we basically see a linear risk between sodium and heart disease and stroke. And that's mediated by, by blood pressure, by hypertension. So both of these, LDL cholesterol and, and hypertension are causal risk factors. They're not, they're not side, they're not moderating factors. Insulin resistance, for example, is a moderating factor. It's not causal. Triglycerides, they're important in the clinical picture, but they're not causal. They're a moderating factor. LDL and hypertension are causal. And we have this diet that is encouraging the most liberal consumption of the two primary nutrients that drive these two causal risk factors. I mean, it's, it's, it's a level of cognitive dissonance that it has to be seen to be believed. And of course we see it every day on social media, unfortunately. Yeah, it's, it's mad. I, I think, I think it just to emphasize your point, um, because I don't want what we're saying to get lost in the sea of voices on social media. Like when we are saying, when we're saying studies, what Alan was referring to is the bulk of the evidence and years, the years of evidence. Yeah, absolutely. So, I think, you know, we have to assume that that's on the right track. We have to assume these people who dedicate their entire lives to learning about nutrition and then are, and are taught by other people who have done the same and get together with a bunch of other people who have done the same are probably coming to a better conclusion than Dave, who's had a look at um, the Liver King's latest post. I think that's the way forward. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and also it's it's in that body of knowledge, and this is crucial to kind of inferences and conclusions that we make in science is it's about converging lines of evidence from multiple different type of study. So for both the saturated fat and sodium question, we can look at very tightly controlled lab studies where you're isolating the independent effects of nutrients. You're controlling the participant's diet, you're maintaining energy balance in those participants so that the effects aren't influenced by weight gain or weight loss. You're manipulating very specific components of diet and then looking at how that changes blood cholesterol or, or blood pressure or whatever you're interested in. So we've got these really tightly controlled studies, but because of their tight control, they're short term. Um, and then we've got our kind of epidemiology. We've got large population studies that run over 10, 20 years, and that allows us to identify patterns and identify risk factors, but it doesn't allow us to know necessarily a kind of cause-effect relationship. 
And then we've got our intervention trials. And that's actually where for, people in nutrition often point the finger at epidemiology. But, you know, for, for kind of geeky methodological reasons, I don't get it. I won't get into randomized controlled trials in nutrition really shouldn't be treated as some sort of sacrosanct gold standard. Um, and for many reasons, because you're limited in terms of what you can and cannot do with participants, you can't study the range of nutrient intake like you can in a population study. So the point is that we've got these large longer term studies, we identify factors in them, we've got these short tightly controlled studies, we do have intervention trials looking at intermediate risk factors like over 12 weeks or over a year, this was the change in cholesterol or this was the change in blood pressure. Um, we have some trials in nutrition that do actually have mortality endpoints. And it's you synthesize this whole body of evidence to come to a conclusion. Um, and what, what people in the kind of more denialist camps do is they do the opposite. They latch on to a single study, irrespective of its methodological quality, because the outcome suits their belief. And then they say, aha, but how can you say X equals Y? Because look at this study over here. And all you're doing is playing chess with a pigeon then. You're, you're constantly dealing with it. It's whack-a-mole right? Because you refute that study. They didn't care about the study in the first place. They're just throwing paint against the wall to see what sticks. And, and this is the fundamental difference between multiple lines of evidence converging to give us a conclusion versus someone just pointing at any study. It doesn't matter. And that's why they'll pull out studies on rodents. They'll pull out ecological studies. They'll, they'll pull out anything that suits the conclusion that they've already arrived at anyway. Uh, so it's completely different to the scientific method. Yeah, 100%. Uh, I think that possibly points to why social media encourages people so much, because I think when people log on social media, they're basically looking for affirmation of their own ideas most of the time, rather than uh, looking for information. Uh, I think that's a, a trait yeah. of people on social media. It's not to look for information. It's generally to find affirmation of their already existing beliefs. So I think we're, we'll move on to um, we'll move on to vegan and um sort of those camps now because we're not just after blood for carnivores no. we're, we're knocking these guys out today as well so um i thought it'd be good to cover a, a similar question but from a vegan perspective um i mean one of the points that i saw in uh, as a joe rogan podcast with uh, chris wilkes i think it was and chris crester and james wilkes where um, oh, yeah. yeah yeah that one this is pretty pretty good one that james made the point that meat is bad for you and actually vegetables are what almost compensate for the fact that meat is so bad for you which um, was an interesting point but it's certainly one which it, it tends to be quite prevalent and so his idea was actually why don't you just have the good stuff don't have any of the bad stuff and if we can just throw a spotlight under the more um the more practical biological mechanisms of vegan rather than the ethical stuff um mm. Yeah, I mean, look, the, the ethical stuff and and the even the environmental considerations, they, they are important, um, but they're really not my interest or expertise. Um, my and, and, and this and this is where the confusion kind of can arise because you you need to be very clear when discussing kind of plant based or, or plant exclusive dietary patterns where someone is coming from. Um, because if they're coming at it from a place of ethics, um, unfortunately, they're often bad faith actors in a conversation about the, the health research. And because their ethical views are so strong, 
they're willing to lie, misrepresent, uh, and everything in between um, the research on health outcomes. And so we see this a lot, for example, with dairy intake, right? So people, I've had numerous conversations where ultimately I've realized, well, why, why are they, why, why is this such a hard and fast stance? And then I realized because of their ethical position, they're only ever going to be capable of interpreting the research on the health outcomes associated with dairy through the most kind of biased lens possible. Um, from a purely health perspective, um, the, uh, you know, we, we've got a couple of layers that we can think about this. One is just in, independent of whether it's a plant exclusive diet or not. People tend to, with these labels like plant-based, I mean, our dietary guidelines have always been plant-based insofar as even with the original food pyramid, I mean, the, 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 the bottom rungs of the pyramid were non-starchy vegetables, fruits, and whole grains. Uh, I, I thought really the, hasn't I thought, changed. I thought the government was encouraging us to eat processed meats and processed foods. That's, that's <laughs> it, you know, that seems to be a common lie too. <laughs> The, go the, go the government was, yeah, exactly, is trying to make us sick. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't know why that necessarily needs a label. Um, and it frustrates me that it does. And I think it puts people's backs up um, who don't want the moralizing and evangelizing that comes with eating fruits and vegetables is the most incontrovertible fucking fact we have in nutrition, like literally uh and it's only in recent years that we've got the crazies actually trying to make a case against that not not just against it but they're harmful for you as like paul saladino will try and make the case um so you know paul can be scared of salads all he likes but the reality is that th this is the most accepted fact in in nutrition research on any level and there are nutrient reasons for that there are um non-nutritive compounds that, that appear to contribute quite meaningfully to, to human health that we don't derive nutrition from. They're not vitamins and minerals, but they are bioactive. Um, and this is just a cornerstone of most healthy dietary patterns, independent of the uh, animal content of those diets and the sources of those animal contents. So if you look at the traditional Japanese diet or you look at the traditional Mediterranean diet, you know, you see differing food sources um, or you see, look at the Blue Zones diets. You can go from Cyprus to Costa Rica to any of the Blue Zones and you will see this unifying characteristic irrespective of the other characteristics of that diet. So, and then we have specific nutrients of interest like fiber, um, you know, robustly associated with health outcomes across the board. Um, and the foods that tend to contribute to that fiber intake, whole grains and legumes in particular, again, fairly consistent contributors to healthy dietary patterns, although the actual specific food itself may differ. You know, they, they traditionally, you know, whole grains in Europe might include kind of oats and rye and barley, but they don't necessarily eat those foods in Japan. So again, the, the characteristics of the diet can change. Um, in terms of the foods in the diet, but we're seeing similar kind of aspects of, or, or pillars, as we might say, of health. And so a lot of these foods are sourced from plants. And so the question then is, 
well, within that context, if we know that these foods from plants origin are pretty consistently on their own associated with positive health outcomes, to what degree do animal sourced foods have a place in the diet and have a role in the diet? And really, if you look at the epidemiology on this question, the kind of group that fare best overall are pescatarians. Um, so vegetarians who consume fish and maybe some some kind of dairy or eggs as well, but mostly defined as vegetarians who consume fish. Um, the, the difficulty with studying vegans specifically is in terms of the growth of its popularity, it's relatively recent. We don't have really good quality data about specifically vegans in population research. The Adventist Health Study 2 in America has the longest group in terms of duration that they identify as being vegan. It's about 20 years. Very, very small numbers, though. So the risk estimates that we get in those studies from that group are biased because of how small the number is. And they're very health conscious individuals who don't smoke, often don't drink, and have an, a range of health promoting behaviors involved. Um, and if you look at the intervention trials, a lot of them have used an iteration, which is called the whole food plant-based diet. And that is quite an actual extreme version. It's almost like the keto version of, of the plant-based world where you limit dietary fat to 10% or less of total energy. And the diet is primarily 75% carbohydrate and the remainder is protein intake from the plant sources that are consumed. And, and this, has been the darling of people in that community. But the actual intervention trials we have, again, just like the keto diet and sports performance are really underwhelming. Um, there are not these magical eradications of disease that occur when people adopt this diet. Most people without doubt struggle to even hit the 10% of energy from fat threshold. They usually get it down to about 17. Um, there's ma massive compliance issues. So uh, I think the question yeah, I think the enthusiasm for that dietary pattern outpaces the evidence just as much as it does for the ketogenic diet. So independent of kind of ethical considerations and the moral considerations, it is very clear that a, a kind of a vegan diet or a plant exclusive diet that follows the kind of best practice principles we have for a lot of these food groups, because you can eat a vegan junk diet, right? And a lot of, a lot of, what's happening in the population now is people are consuming the standard Western diet just with, with impossible burgers, basically. <laughs> um, and so the actual diet itself is not necessarily improved, but for people who follow a plant exclusive diet that is liberal with non-starchy vegetables, fruits, whole grains, legumes, starchy tubers, uh, avocado, nuts, seeds, and these foods, it absolutely is a robustly healthy dietary pattern. Um, but but I don't see anything currently in the data that suggests that, you know, moderate intakes of dairy, um, certainly fish, pretty consistently associated with improved health outcomes and modest intakes of unprocessed red meat. And by modest in the in the research that appears to be a threshold of about 100 grams or less a day on average. This is an average now in the context of a diet high in vegetables and fruit seems to be fine. 
higher levels than that, but certainly over kind of 150 grams a day, 160 grams a day, even with kind of fruit and vegetable intakes may not necessarily over time be as be as healthy if we compare that to a diet that didn't have that level of intake to the same dietary pattern where they were only different in the level of red meat high versus low red meat you probably would get better health outcomes in the lower red meat group so there there is a place i think again independent of the ethical and environmental considerations there is a place for these food groups and like i said certainly in epidemiology it's kind of iterations of vegetarian that tend to pescatarian in particular that tend to tend to have the the the, the strongest kind of risk reduction over over years interesting yeah so um i i saw your recent podcast um on sigma looking at the comparison of very low fat diet to that with addition of olive oil or nuts and that they were generally better health outcomes with the added good fats which I thought was very interesting because it's a direct uh, backup to what you're saying here, which is awesome. So just to sort of, um, I guess, underline this, I'm going to skip ahead to the recommendation of like, what we should eat. So if I've got this right, um, in general, um, a diet full of fruits and vegetables, also fish would generally be a good idea. Very, very limited amounts of red meats in the realm of maybe a, por a small portion per day or every other day. Um, and also some healthy fats would probably be a good idea. That would pretty much round it out. Okay. And I guess the inevitable question out of that would be, well, we're bulking. Where are we going to get the rest of our calories from? Because that's a very filling diet. So what else would be acceptable on that to, for our population? Yeah, I think, I think for a kind of resistance training, physique conscious population, the remainder of that from the actual energy deriving start, uh, carbohydrate foods. Right. So assuming someone is going to be hitting with these food choices, their their total protein intake. Um, and, and and I think, you know, someone who's obviously looking for kind of surplus energy doesn't necessarily need to only be filling up on oats and lentils, although they should definitely, you know, foods like that that are high in fiber, have specific fiber types that are really good, do have added protein, kind of plant source protein. Um, but really, you know, they're they're difficult. They're foods that you don't eat in bulk right because of their um because of their kind of satiating effect so you know that that's where you've got kind of energy yielding foods that are kind of a bit more bang for your buck calorie wise as well like there's always a place for i think white rice white potatoes and these kind of foods um and foods that you can kind of consume in a bit more bulk in that sense as well um so yeah i think i think that's really what kind of rounds out that dietary pattern then but i think where people potentially go wrong certainly in the kind of bodybuilding and physique conscious community is their diet is it's chicken and chicken and rice right white rice <laughs> you're just like you know and, and there might be a few miserable looking sprigs of broccoli thrown on top of that and that, <laughs> it's like come on wait. i hope i hope we're not there anymore <laughs> no, no, no. Pro possibly when i started bodybuilding possibly we were yeah so but yeah that, that's fantastic now um that was amazing. And just in and of itself, I think we've had a great conversation. Um, but I wanted to discuss also quackery. And if you have time, I'd love to do a bit more sure. on, on quackery. Thank you. Um, so we kind of touched on this over the course of the discussion, but this is something I'm very interested in because it's going to speak to the audience. How do quacks 
And what I mean by quacks is people who, who come across as very knowledgeable, but actually they're just full of shite. How do quacks actually gain credibility? And if you could, if you, Alan, could give us a brief primer on how to know you're dealing with a quack or not. Um, aside from if he's topless yeah. with a beard and holding yeah. a pair of testicles. <laughs> Yeah, that, that, that really, I, there's some, there's some low hanging fruit. I would hope people's critical thinking skills would be intact for, um, you know, if someone's, if someone's topless in a supermarket shouting about kale being bad for you, like it's usually a walk away moment. Um, unfortunately we can't, we can't even be too confident anymore. So the, the, but, you know, one, one thing one thing not to get lured into is this idea, and you mentioned this earlier, this kind of, oh, well, studies show all quacks will attempt to drown their pseudoscience in a veneer of, of science, right? So they will talk about, oh, studies show this or that. Um, but if you do a little bit of wider kind of research on whatever topic they're speaking to, you might notice that what the quack is saying is the exact opposite of what you found elsewhere. And this should be an amber light or a red light in and of itself, because the commonality of quackery is contrarianism, right? And we, we see this across a range of, and this is why quacks typically don't just stay on one topic. They become contrarians, you know, not just for uh, diet, but suddenly they jump on, you know, vaccine topics or they, they jump on a range of other kind of alternative health um, sacred cows. So typically you might notice that they're saying the complete opposite of whatever the consensus is. Right? Yeah. Um, they typically will also, one thing I would be really mindful of in their language is, are they kind of always blaming you know the system you know are they saying you know government this or guidelines that particularly from a dietary perspective it's it's this idea that there's there's just this giant conspiracy and they're the ones that are here to enlighten us and we should be thankful for their existence because of that so a big part of it is their rhetoric of kind of you know the government wants to make you sick or you know, they, this kind of ubiquitous they is, is out there pulling strings, um, you know, to, to get you to kind of eat a certain way or to think a certain thing. And, and this is really attractive to people because one of, when you look at research and why people buy into these kind of conspiratorial ideas, people enjoy feeling like they're special and that they're possessed of knowledge that like they're in the know of, but no one else really is. Um, and so if you find yourself kind of attracted to that, it's, it's an amber light to pinch yourself and be like, wait, 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 why, why, why am I attracted to this? Just because it kind of sounds a bit contrarian. Um, and then th th I think one, one thing to be mindful of is how do they interact with, with critics, right? Um, anyone who's a decent science communicator and genuine will always engage in good faith. Uh, even if someone shows up and is like, well, I've heard something completely different. What, why should I believe you? They'll, they'll actually walk them through. Well, these are the specific studies I'm relying on. And these reasons are why that study is more trustworthy than this one or is a better study than that one. 
um, they'll typically kind of shout people down or they'll say, oh, go and read my book or, you know, well, you know, it'll always be dismissive. Um, and so, so yeah, so they would be the kind of things that contrarianism, uh, that tendency to talk about, you know, the system, they, the government, the guidelines, the, in this kind of conspiratorial way, basically gaslighting critics um, and they'll typically often have a view that's extreme and so i would that's the last thing i would say is just be really mindful of extreme views um because nothing's really ever at that level of an extreme certainly not with diet yeah the the thing that i've i've noticed with with some of the people who i've been in contact with is while they can be intelligent, they seem to lack an ability to appreciate nuance. And it's almost like everything can be yes. explained and wrapped up in a bow. And I'll just share a, a bit of a story. I was having a conversation with a guy I met um, at the gym last week, and we were just talking about the music. And uh, we ended up saying, well, current music is not very good. Older music is better, you know, the usual stuff. And um, we went from that to talking about how new modern music is all scripted and it's all fake to then talking about how everything is scripted and fake to then talking about how we are going to be involved in the great reset and within i think it was it was about <laughs> three minutes and 30 seconds because i was timing it as i was going between sets but we for three minutes we went from tupac in the 90s to talking about the great reset it was amazing wow that was the explanation for everything like everything that's going wrong in our lives right now is that fantastic <laughs> if only it was that simple yeah 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 the rabbit hole um but yeah, no, I think you're right. I think that's a really, I think that's a really good example of the lack of nuance. It's an inability to engage with nuance, and then it's the rabbit hole of just falling down from one kind of theory to another. They're all connected. Yeah, they're all connected. Yeah, yeah, we see it all the time. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think that's, and I think you know if. If people find themselves doing that, like you say, it's probably worth to have a word of themselves and, and say, okay, what, what am I doing? So, um, mm. okay, cool. Um, we'll, uh, we'll end with um, a sort of a final fun round. Um, I'm going to shout at you a bunch of names and I would like you to do in a very sort of Romanesque way, either thumbs up, medium or thumbs down um, in terms of what you think within the context, well, wh okay. whatever context. So, thumbs up already. All right, the liver king. Okay. Um, Tim Noakes, or or Tim Hoax, as he's called sometimes. Tim um, Hoax, yeah. <laughs> uh, Bio Lane. Yep. Andrew Huberman. Right. Yeah. Yes. It's yeah. uncertain. It's un if the weight of. I, I can't. Yeah, I can't give him a thumbs up because he veers so far out of his lane and he uses his authority as a scientist to speak to areas like nutrition that are just not his domain and he gets it horribly wrong. But I can't give him down because he is a legitimate scientist and has done really good work and his lab do continue to do work in the field of neuroscience. So so the, the unfortunately, the, the lack of thumbs up really doesn't reflect his role in his actual research, it reflects his kind of role in the public science communication sphere where he's just, he's not very trustworthy in that way. I found it quite funny. He was on a Mark Bell podcast uh, very early on and uh, he was he was talking about drugs, TRT and stuff. And so Mark 
basically made the comment that it's quite a surprise he's writing a book on TRT after only being on for six months, <laughs> which which did embarrass Andrew a little bit. <laughs> okay, so next one is um, uh, so funny. Next one is Joe Rogan. Oh, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna go down with Rogan. You know, yeah, I get I get that he does this whole kind of like, hey, I'm I'm here, I'm just interested, I, I want to learn, but like. He's also the most gullible human of all time, um, and he'll, he'll just swallow anything whole. And 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 he continues to have an opportunity to platform credible people in nutrition, and he just doesn't. So yeah, I'm going down yeah. for Rogan. Um, next one, I'm I'm interested in because I don't know myself what I think of him yet. Peter Tia. Uh yeah, I'm I'm, I'm kind of neutral on Tia. I don't follow him too much. Mm. I think. I think on some things that I've heard him speak on, he's absolutely thumbs up. LDL cholesterol, lipoproteins, cardiovascular disease. But again, from a nutrition standpoint, he seems to be a bit romanced by kind of sexy mechanisms and theories and possibly a bit too bro kind of with some of that stuff for me. Um, so yeah, some somewhere there. But that, I mean, that could just be my own ignorance because I don't listen to him that much, to be honest. Yeah, yeah me either. Um, I'm going to throw one in, who is the darling of the evidence-based community at the moment. And um, he's, he's um, I, I've noticed he's taken an interesting change of pace recently. So I'd like to know what you think. Uh, Menno Hensman. Oh, I'm, uh, God, I might go here as well. I, I, I realize, again, Menno with a lot of that, with like with the SNC side and, and all of that kind of stuff seems to be kind of really credible and, and I don't know anything in that sphere. But I'm I'm constantly tagged in like earlier when I referred to that person that referred to like the, the study on high saturated fat intake with the twenty four grams a day Japanese cohorts. That that was Menno. Yeah. So I just I he, he botches takes the whole time. He seems very stuck on his own ideas on that topic, and he'll interpret any evidence that comes out through that lens. Um, and yeah, so I'm 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 not too hot on his on a lot of his nutrition takes, and I, I think certainly from the perspective of nutritional epidemiology, I, I just don't think he has much domain specific knowledge in that area. Yeah, awesome. Awesome. Thank you. All right. Um, I think that's um, the majority of it. So we've, we've wrapped up quite nicely up to an hour. So Alan, I want to say thank you very much for coming on. I hope this episode was, was really useful for everyone. I had a lot of personal value from it. I think people are going to love it. And um, I'd just like to um, ask you if you'd like to plug anything or just tell people where you are available to look at more of your work. Yeah, so um, social media is narrow. Uh, it's really only Instagram at the nutritional underscore advocate. Um, I'm kind of an infrequent poster. Um, but uh, for people that are kind of interested more in the, the research review that I do, that's Alinea Nutrition. That's kind of very much focused more on the nutrition and health outcomes. So I will caveat that for your audience. I don't focus like a lot of other research reviews on kind of body composition, kind of sports nutrition related kind of outcomes. Um, and then also then the podcast with Danny Lennon at Sigma Nutrition and some of my writing over there as well. So yeah, they're the three outlets. Brilliant. All right, Alan, thank you very much. Cheers, Hans. Appreciate it.